Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and like we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life, their journey around the world of martial arts. My guest today has been a bouncer, a bodyguard. She's trained members of SWAT and Navy SEALs. She's been in movies like Batman Returns, Romeo and Michelle, and TV series including Walker, Texas Ranger, and one of my favorites, Street Justice. She won five world titles as a professional kickboxer and became one of the top female fighters in the sport's history. In the ring, she earned nicknames like the Punisher, Queen of Mean, and Princess of Pain. She retired with an impressive 18-1 record. She's appeared on the cover of more than 35 magazines, been inducted into numerous sports hall of fames, including the Bob Elias Sports Hall of Fame, Inside Kung Fu Hall of Fame, and Black Belt Magazine Hall of Fame. She provided commentary for the first ever UFC event, and in 2009 made her own MMA debut. Please welcome to the show today, Kathy Long. How are you doing today, Kathy? I'm good. Boy, you've done your research. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be prepared. So. <laughs> there, there is one thing I need to correct, though. Okay. I, my record is not 18-1. and one. It's much larger, but it's one of those things where I, I guess lots of people's records are public information, but right. before there was documentation and uh, I had quite a few more fights than that, but it's okay. I suppose. So what, what is the actual record that I'm very curious? Well, I guess if you combine all of the contact sports that I've been involved in, the record is more like 42 and, and two. Wow. With one draw. That's really cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, 42 and three. I take that back because okay. I did lose in a boxing match, which was a very defining moment, but we'll, we'll get to that a little later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I did have the note about boxing on here. So yeah, we'll definitely get to that. But what we do with all my guests, we go back to the beginning. I want to know that first interest in martial arts, that first spark and kind of talk about that first thing that got you involved in martial arts. Well, I was 14 years old and just, Going into uh, what if my freshman year in high school, a friend of mine in high school was studying Aikido on March Air Force Base from a man named Ron Granville. He was a postman by day and a, a Aikido instructor by night. Okay. And she invited me to one of her classes. And I fell in love with the nurturing and family structure that this, this man provided. He was very supportive and very uh, caring about all of his students and he really paid attention to all of them and really cared about their progress and what they did and I didn't have much of a family structure at home so I really clung to that and it wasn't so much that I loved Aikido I just loved the family structure that this guy provided so I was one of those gym rats where I would be there before they opened and stay after everyone left and clean the place up and and go because he didn't charge me. Uh, I think the classes were literally $5, just a donation, a $5 donation. And, you know, I couldn't, even, I couldn't even afford that. So he just said, no, it's okay. You can just come and train anyway. It doesn't matter. 
the interesting thing was I lived right next to March Air Force Base. The West Gate was separated by a fence between the trailer park that I lived in and March Air Force Base. And along the fence ran a huge ravine, which was not cemented. It was, you know, just sand and, and dirt. But um, running perpendicular to the fence was a small gutter. And I used to crawl through that gutter to get under the fence, to get onto March Air Force Base because I was not military. And I would crawl through <laughs> crawl through that gutter for about, I don't know, 50, 60 feet. And I'd, I'd tilt my head up and look at the West Gate. And as soon as he wasn't looking, I'd jump up and I'd start walking toward the, <laughs> wow. the area where they taught because, you know, there were plenty of families who lived on the base. And I just, you know, I just acted like I lived there. That's and awesome. Er- Every day I would sneak home <laughs> exactly the same way I came in. And how long did that go on for? <laughs> oh, until I was 17. Wow. Yeah. And I never got caught. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine I would have gotten huge trouble because it was a, it was an active military base at that time. Okay. I don't think it's open now. Okay. And that actually answered my next questions because I was going to ask you what you liked about your first instructor and you kind of explained that. And and one of my other questions was what drew you to the style, but you kind of brought a very important point up and just how important it is to find that right instructor. It's not always about the style. If you find that right instructor, the style might not matter as much, which is kind of what, what was what your story was, which was really cool. Yeah. Oftentimes, the as long as the child is learning and growing and evolving and having fun, especially with the kids having fun. I mean, I was a young adult, but at that time it was, it was vital for me to stay in that atmosphere, in that environment, because he was just such a wonderful person. And everybody else in class uh, was obviously the same way because that's what he presented. So then obviously you, you stuck with martial arts. So something, the instructor was the important part, but something must've stuck with the art itself. And that made you wanted to continue study other martial arts. What came next then after the three years of Aikido? What came next was um, when I was 17, my parents ran away from home and let me back up a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Starting at age 12, I used to babysit for this family that on Friday nights, they would go and donate plasma and get paid enough money to go to the movies or go to dinner and pay the babysitter, which was me, and then and then come back. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that family because, like I said, I didn't have much of a family structure at home. And it was more of a dictatorship in my house and uh, kids were seen but not heard and punishment was severe if you if you did anything wrong and it was just not a good household to, to live in I never quite really felt like I belonged there but having said all that when I was 14 they decided to move to Idaho so at 14 I started I, in the summertime I saved up enough money to because I started working at other places I, I um, took over my brother's paper route you know, I started mowing lawns in the trailer park that I lived in just so I could get extra money in the summertime so that I could pay for my clothes, pay for my school supplies. And I saved enough money to get a Greyhound bus to go from California to Idaho <laughs> to go visit this family that I had wow. babysat for because they lived on a, on a farm in Idaho. And they were just really wonderful people, people that I obviously gravitated to because because of the way they they were and the way they raised their children and and um, you know again family structure, a really nice environment and I learned an awful lot from them. So starting at age fourteen, I would take the bus in the summer 
spend a month with them in the, this family in Idaho and then take the Greyhound bus back home. When I was 17, uh, came back home, my parents were gone. The house was completely empty and I was left with, okay, now I need to find a place to live and find a job and, <laughs> and um, finish school. And all of that was because my sister, I have a twin sister. Um, When we were 15, she ran away from home and refused to come home because, you know, she, she just got tired of, uh, of the abuse and everything else. So when we were 17, my sister became an emancipated minor and, you know, was out of the quote unquote system because she went into foster care and state of California slapped my parents with a huge bill and, they decided to leave instead. Wow. That's crazy. It was crazy. But, you know, I, I, I actually was partially relieved by the fact that I didn't have to be in that household anymore. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So I was happy to, you know, I, I found a job and um, one of my high school friends, older sister had already gone to college. So I asked that family if I could rent their bedroom for, you know, they rented it for, I think 200 or 250 a month. And, I was able to pay for that with the job that I had and I was going to college at night and high school during the day. And it was a, it was a good life. And then I met my friends introduced me to someone that they had a lot of respect for. He was a martial artist and he was a black belt in Kung Fu San Tzu. And I met him and, and then started training with him. We were training in the park because he didn't have a school at the time. And, and then we got together and we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And when I was 19, I left college and, and opened a martial arts school with him and fell in love with teaching. And through that, I also learned JKD and Kali and Wing Chun, several arts, because he used to drive to the Insano Academy, okay. take lessons there and then come back. And not that you're supposed to do that, but <laughs> he did. He would go there, take take lessons and then come back and teach us. Um, <laughs> but it was a it was a great experience. And then during that time, I used to compete in forms because in Kung Fu Sansu, we actually do place our fingers on people's eyes and drive their head back or hit them in the windpipe or hit them in the groins. That's why men and women always wear groin protectors because understanding how the body reacts away from pain. When you strike somebody in the eyes, you can't strike them three or four more times afterwards because if you're accurate and you're committed in that strike, their hands are going to go to the area that's hurt and they're going to reel away from the pain. And that's typically how that works. So when that happens, you are able to hit other centerline targets, or it just depends on what you want to go for. But once you hit somebody in the eyes, they'll create other other targets for you to hit. And you you then create a collision course, judging by how they're reacting away from pain. Wow. Okay. I know you mentioned... So that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, please. <laughs> no, I was going to say, you, you mentioned teaching. I'm just kind of curious. You opened your own school, what and, and, and you still teach to this day. What do you think's changed about your teaching style over the years? I'm curious. That's a good question because I was painfully shy when I was growing up. And as a young adult, I was just, I was the kind of person that would sit back and just watch and observe and be happy not to say a damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) So what forced me out of that shell literally was getting a job. uh, When I was 18 or 19, I got a job hostessing. So I, I was forced to speak to people. And then after that, I got a job waiting tables. When I opened the school, I was happy that um, because I was already a black belt in Aikido, but I wasn't, you know, it was just a white belt in Kung Fu San Tzu. So I was happy to to let him do the teaching and the speaking. But I, I watched and observed and listened 
he was fortunately somebody who paid very close attention to detail. And he explained things in a way that people understood very well. I really enjoyed his teaching method because he left nothing nothing un, unanswered or no questions. I learned a lot from him about what to do and what not to do. Okay. What to say and what not to say. <laughs> so my teaching, I guess now is... I guess I pride myself in understanding how a, an individual learns because nobody learns the same way. Right. I mean, there are audio learners, visual learners, kinesthetic learners, and there are people who are combinations of three or four or whatever. And if you cannot convey the information to them in a way that they understand it the best, then you're stuck. And I really enjoy learning how to teach because with every person that comes into the school, I learn something new and different. Great answer. Now, you, you mentioned competing. In, how did you do competing in forms? Um, I did okay. I mean, I, I was, I'll just say I was okay. <laughs> okay. But what got me started in kickboxing was competing in forms. There was a girl who would come into these tournaments and she would compete in, in the point fighting, which I never saw that made any sense to me. I mean, point fighting is great in that it teaches you timing. With timing, you can you can pretty much do anything you want to do. I, I just never appreciated the deliberately missing your target, like that focused contact, mm -hmm. because that teaches you bad habits in my mind. At that time, I was very opinionated about uh, point fighting versus Kung Fu Sansu, for example. Kung Fu Sansu would not work in a tournament because I would stick my fingers knuckle deep in their eye and I would hit them in the windpipe. And, I, <laughs> and these are areas you're not allowed to strike. That would be bad. However... <laughs> You know, our instructor was very good at forcing you to work with limitations. Okay, your left hand is broken and you need to, you're fighting three people, go. So you weren't allowed to use your left hand okay. at all. And you had to, you know, adjust and adapt. And that's one of the highest attributes of any fighter is being able to adapt to any situation, being able to change. Yeah, you have your game plan, but you need to be able to work on the fly and be able to adjust and adapt and change as you, as needed. So having said that, she would constantly invite me to do point sparring with her. And I said, no, you want to fight? Let's step out back. <laughs> <laughs> nice. One day, one day her instructor called my instructor and he said, hey, would Kathy be willing to do an exhibition kickboxing match with my girl? And Eric looked at me and he goes, what do you think? And I said, well, okay, so what are the rules? Well, you have to wear gloves and you're not allowed to hit the windpipe or the groin or you're allowed to punch and kick as hard as you want to. And as soon as I heard those words, <laughs> you're allowed to punch and kick as hard as you want to. And I thought, I mean, sign me up, let's go. And I'd never done it before. And I only had 10 days to prepare. Wow. Yeah. She weighed 190. I weighed 120. <laughs> wow. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah. And I went in there and we just pounded the crap out of each other <laughs> at one point because I really didn't know the rules all that well. At one point she had bent down and I, I, I hit her with an uppercut and then I reached my arm over her neck and I'm holding her head, you know, like in a headlock and I'm punching her, uppercutting her in the face. <laughs> and Peter Cunningham was my was my referee or our referee. Oh, nice. And he runs up and goes, no, 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 you can't do that. It's against the rules. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I don't know the rules. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, okay, just don't do that. All right. It was really funny. That's awesome. 
<laughs> and that that got me started in kickboxing. I was so scared. I was just I was so scared that I'd look at her and when the bell rang for that minute rest to sit down and get uh, advice from your coach and get water, I'm standing there in the middle of the ring. Come on, come on. You're going to sit down. Let's go. Let's fight. You weigh a lot more than I do. Come on. You know this better than I have. You've been doing this for two years. What are you doing sitting down? And I'm just trying to make her feel bad because I was scared trying to let her think that I was just this crazy maniac, kind of like what Muhammad Ali did with, um, yep. I think it was Frazier. That's great. It was, it was hilarious, but you know, I, I, the funny part, here's the really funny part about that. After the three rounds were done, now her school put on the event, her, her school had all the judges, her school, you know, hired Peter Cunningham as their referee. So you know where this is going. Mm-hmm. When they, when they invited us to have this match, it was an exhibition, except that the announcer gets in there and he goes, give the ladies a hand and we're tallying up the scores right now. So it'll just be a second. And I looked at the announcer and I looked at my, my instructor, Eric, and Eric immediately got up. He walked over to the guy. He placed his arm over his shoulder and he says, Hey buddy, I'll tell you what, this is an exhibition. And if you announce a winner right now, I'm going to break your arm right here and right now. So, so the guy says, give the ladies a hand. What an excellent exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no winner announced. Did you ever find out who actually it. won? <laughs> I have no clue. Okay. <laughs> All I know is that we pounded the crap out of each other. And I discovered something that I, I was hooked on adrenaline. It was the most, uh, it was the biggest adrenaline I've ever experienced at that time in my life. Since then, I have skydived and cliff dived and done all kinds of things as an adrenaline junkie. I've I've raced cars. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, but so at, it's also pretty pretty dangerous. Oh yeah. So at this time, then was there even a, a female kickboxing division or league or anything? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I started kickboxing in 1987. Okay. So by 1990, there was tons of media coverage. ESPN was starting to have kickboxing bouts and Showtime was, and there are all these other people who have, who would televise it on pay-per-view events. So I was coming into kickboxing just when it started getting really popular, Okay, which was a good thing, I guess, for me. I got a lot more media coverage than some of the other girls who, some of my predecessors who were, you know, also highly skilled in their, in their art or in their sport. Nice. Yeah, so I, I got lucky. So back then, you know, it's, you know, it's it's so different with combative sports. I mean, you look at like something like the UFC. There's guys who fight once or twice a year. Uh, like on average, how many fights were you doing a year when you like the heyday I of kickboxing? Tell you, okay. But all I know is that I trained six days a week, every single day of the year, except for you know the days that I was off, which is Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was 365 days. What is 365 minus, you know, four Sundays a month? Um, so it was pretty much every day. Yeah. Uh, Sunday was my only day of recovery, which, you know, really wasn't enough. But when I decided to turn pro, I I took it very seriously. And I thought, okay, if this is my profession and I am a professional at what I'm doing, I have to make sure that I'm always ready if a promoter calls and asks my coach, trainer, boyfriend, martial arts instructor, hey, we'd like to have Kathy Long on the show um, next month or in two weeks or in one week or whenever. And Eric would say, yep, she's ready. Wow. 
So it didn't matter who you were just ready, no matter who the opponent was. Absolutely. That's impressive. I, I took it seriously. I was like, you know, this is my job. And, you know, if you're going to do your job right, if you want to become a world champion, then you have to do, you have to be ready at all times. And that meant that I trained and a lot of people would say I overtrained, but the good thing about me is that I knew that I was ready no matter what. So then how long before you won your first world championship? I started kickboxing in 1987. I turned to pro in 89, if I recall correctly. And I won my first title in 1990. Oh, wow. So yeah. Right after I did everything pro. backwards. You know, I had my first fight after 10 days and then I had a, a handful of amateur fights. And then I turned pro against a girl who was 18 and two. And I lied to the promoters and said I was six and oh as a pro, but they had no way of looking into it to see if it was true. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this is where, you know, people's records can be boosted up or, you know, taken down in that I had also gone to Mexico and had several fights there, but there was no, I mean, the state athletic commission wasn't doing drug tests back then. Right. Oh, wow. And there were people who, you know, they would travel to other states and other countries and, and fight, but they would come to their fight and say, oh, I'm only, I'm only um, four and one, when actually they're 20 and one or 25 and one, because they've had quite a bit of experience. And I've seen this over the years where people will say, yeah, I'm, I've only had, you know, five pro fights when they've had 25 pro yeah. fights. And they do that because they want to make sure they win. Right. So they'll deliberately fight a guy who is legitimately uh, two and one as a pro when they're 25 and one as a pro. Yeah, that's wrong. I did it backwards. <laughs> I did it backwards and I, I was O and O as a pro. And I said, Oh, I'm six and six and O as a pro. Because <laughs> I just wanted to be able to get that fight. And it was, you know, they were offering decent money. So what, what, what was like a, a prize purse back then for, for winning? Did you get a different amount to win or was it just, you got paid this much to fight back then? You got paid whatever it was to fight, no matter what, okay. um, win or lose. As long as you showed up and you fought, you showed up and you were at weight, you were good. Okay. My, my world title fights were maybe 10,000, maybe, oh. you know, even though all my sparring partners were men, yeah. I, um, which I'm grateful for, but that's where I sustained a lot of my injuries was fighting them <laughs> because I'd get in the, get in the ring to spar with them and they would beat the shit out of me until I figured it out. Yeah. It was um, a rough road, yeah. really rough road. I sustained a lot of serious injuries, but you know, my, for my first world title fight, it was in Las Vegas at Caesar palace. And I walked into that fight with broken ribs. Really? Yep. Dang. That, that had to... And I wasn't, I wasn't about to tell anybody. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Because I knew, I knew they'd, they'd postpone it. Yeah. And it, you know, this is a world title fight. I'm like, this is my first world title fight. I said, hell no. I'm not going to tell anybody I have broken ribs. So that was, that was a very rough fight. Wow. That, yeah. I'm lucky. I'm really lucky in that I'm one of those fighters that doesn't feel pain during the fight because, mm -hmm. because of adrenaline. And I knew that about myself. So I also knew that while I was fighting, I'd be fine as long as I could breathe and, you know, I could, I could uh, protect the left side of my ribs. I'd be okay. Okay. Good, good. So what made you decide to jump into the boxing ring then? Mm. I had gotten out of kickboxing for a little while. I shot a few low-budget films. I was starting a couple. And, you know, I just had the itch to fight again. And uh, 
I just reached out to um, Freddie Roach, actually, and uh, who's a good friend. And I just told him, you know, I'd, I'd love to do some training with you. And, and he didn't necessarily train me, but I came across a coach that I really appreciated working with. And he was really good at what he did. But we trained a lot at Freddie Roach's gym in Los Angeles at the time. And, you know, I did some sparring with uh, gosh, quite a few fighters whose names are escaping me. But it was it was a lot of fun. And the better I got, I, I entered this little mini tournament. And this was around 1998. There was a, I liked boxing, but it wasn't nearly as, as it wasn't nearly as uh, open as kickboxing or Muay Thai. You know, I, I was used to working with limitations. So I understood that, you know, I couldn't kick and I never had the desire to kick while I was boxing, which is good, but it still it was kind of limiting in, in my mind. How did the, the UFC thing come about when you, you know, for UFC number one, is that something did did someone reach out to you? Did you approach them? Someone reached out to me Okay. and they asked if I'd be willing to, to color commentate. And I was still very shy, but I'd certainly gotten better at, at learning to do interviews mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and talking to people. Um, by that time I had definitely felt better about talking. I said, yes, of course, you know, so it was a, it was a good opportunity and I got to tell you, you know, when I showed up in Colorado and I was there, you know, several days before so that we could get used to uh, get the get the backstory of all the fighters who were there, the Gracies and that sort of thing. And I remember sitting in the rules meeting before the fight or before the event began. And I, I remember, uh, again, I'm forgetting his name. That's interesting. I don't know why I keep forgetting names, but the boxer who was there, he kept saying, okay, so what do I do? Do I wrap my hands or, and do I have to wear gloves? And like, no, you don't have to wear gloves. Okay. So then do I wrap my hands and wear one glove or, or do I just wear my hand wraps or, and he kept asking, you know, different various questions about the gloves because he's a boxer. Right. And their answer was, I don't know. And I'm wow. thinking, oh my God, we're at the freaking rules meeting. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> that was uh, Art Jimerson, if I remember. He was the guy. Art Jimerson, yes. Yeah, the guy that wore the single boxing glove in there. That was hilarious. Yes, because that was his <laughs> choice to wear a single boxing glove um, and have the other hand free to do what? I don't know. These <laughs> don't, poor guys, they had no clue what they were getting into. They had no idea. They didn't know what Brazilian Jiu Jitsu was. Right. And. You know, the only other person besides, you know, there was Ken Shamrock. He had done Sambo. Yep. Um, so he was very familiar with that style of fighting and, and maybe not as uh, adapt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but certainly knew holds and locks and leverage. Mm-hmm. Pretty good at that. The sumo wrestler, he had no clue what he could do and what he couldn't do. And when he asked a question, again, the answer was, I don't know. That's crazy. And I'm thinking to myself, we're in a rules meeting for Christ's sake, people. <laughs> wow. So what were your just yeah. overall thoughts of the first, the first ever UFC? I mean, just being there, that part of history, what, you know, just, if you remember your thoughts as you're watching it, what was going well, through your at head? That, at that time, because, you know, I was also not very familiar with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. I just thought, okay, I get it. It's the Gracie show and they are going to, weather whatever storm they can to get inside. And as soon as they get a hold of you, they're going to have their way with you because nobody else understands this art and how to combat it. 
And I just thought, oh, okay, so it's a it's a setup. <laughs> yep. That was my that was my idea. I mean, not that not that they were paying anybody to to take a dive, but what they were picking people who had no clue how to how to deal with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Right. Which yeah. I thought was grossly unfair. Yeah. I mean they they picked people they knew would had no chance of winning. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I was really turned off by it. Even though I did some judging or I think was judging on another event that was very similar to that. It was just a bloodbath. And um, I can't remember the name of that event. It's, it's been a while. Yeah. I've slept since then. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Well, the sport has definitely changed over the, over the decades. I mean, it's. Boy, has it, you know, I was, I think the way it is now is it's a very well-rounded art, a well-rounded sport, I should say. And if you are deficit, if you have a deficit in one aspect or another of that art, you will be exposed and you will be taken down for it. Definitely. Yeah. And now, you know, it's not so one-sided. It's not so lopsided. I remember for a little while there, you know, the, the more I watched it, the more, you know, disheartened and discouraged I was by the fact that, you know, the Gracies were just taking that sport by storm, but it was their sport and they yeah. created it. And it was sometime later when I finally saw uh, kickboxers starting to take a little bit of control over the art in that they had superior footwork. And if the jujitsu person wasn't able to get in close enough to get them and get them to the ground, they would eat punches and kicks. Yep. I was happy to see that change, that, that, <laughs> that shift. And it's like, okay, finally, you know, they're these kickboxing folks are, learning enough Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to defend themselves and then use their footwork to make sure that that guy doesn't take him down. And then, of course, it just got better. There was people who were doing judo coming in, people doing wrestling coming in. And the more different styles of arts that came in, that got involved in the UFC, uh, the more it forced everybody's hand to be good at everything, not just one thing. Right. And I, I really appreciated that. Nice. So what made you want to jump into the octagon and, and uh, actually do an MMA fight? Well, I'd had the desire once I saw, I started watching the UFC again, and I just thought, you know, I can do that. <laughs> I'm pretty damn sure I can. And, you know, what, I was in my 40s at the time. And uh, Josh Barnett, I was teaching at the Tap Out Gym in downtown Los Angeles, and Josh Barnett was bringing his crew in there to train now i had trained with gokor and um eric polson okay quite a few other people but because i was there teaching at the tapa gym uh eddie bravo was there with his you know he had his headquarters set up in downtown la at the tapa gym and josh was bringing in his fighters i remember coming over there and you know i i introduced myself to josh and he was i know who you are <laughs> and I just sat there one day, you know, trying to figure out how I could ask if I could please join in on their training because I really wanted to have another fight. And, you know, it took me, it took me, I think a month to get up the courage to ask him. And I said, so I don't suppose you could, I, I'd be able to train with your guys and, and learn more. He goes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, it was that easy, that simple done. <laughs> right. And, I was training with Gokor when I had my first fight and uh, Batiste Mansouri was another person that I'd been training with. So between Batiste Mansouri and Gokor, you know, and, and the Gracies were that at uh, Batiste Mansouri's school. 
you know, I was doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes and I, they were the ones who, who got me into my first fight. And I remember Romeo Rem standing there and looking at me and the very first, the very last thing that was said to me before I walked into the cage, he looked at me and he goes, do not end up on your back. Do you understand me? <laughs> and when I heard those words, they stuck in my head. And I thought, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> if you had watched the fight, the first MMA fight that I had, if you had watched it, she took me down and I felt my back hitting the mat. And those words were coming into my head. Do not end up on your back. And I thought, no. <laughs> I said, like, how do I reverse this? <laughs> so when she got me down, I just thought, keep rolling, keep rolling. And then I ended up on top and we worked from there. But, you know, it was, uh, That's it was awesome. very funny. The things you remember when you're in your fight. Because his words were just right in my ear as my back is hitting the mat. Do not end up on your back. Nice. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's awesome. So to back up a little bit, how did you end up getting involved in, in movies and TV show? I and mean, I know you, you've done acting, you've done stunts. How did that come about? Well, after um, I got a phone call from Benny the Jet Yokitas, who said that he had worked on the first Batman movie. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where Tim Burton was directing. And he called me and said, hey, they're going to start a second one. And they're looking for a fight double for Michelle Pfeiffer to act as, you know, to, to train her. And he goes, I'm going to put your name in the hat and let you go and audition. And I'll set that up for you. And I said, wow, okay, sure. Why not? What the heck? <laughs> nice. So jumped in my car. I drove from Bakersfield all the way to Burbank. And I remember walking into Warner Brothers and they had told me that it's this building, this numbered building and this numbered room and and gave me a map. And I as I started walking through, I was instantly lost, like totally lost. It's like Warner Brothers is huge. So I'm, I'm, I'm walking around and I'm seeing all these buildings and I'm trying to figure out you know, how to get to the one I'm supposed to go to to meet with the stunt coordinator or the fight coordinator. Yeah, he's the stunt coordinator. And I, I see this. Uh, pleasant looking young man with straggly hair and he's got a, a button-up shirt with skulls all over it and, and uh, baggy pants and, and he kind of looked like a gopher boy <laughs> and I said excuse me sir would you happen to know where this building is because I'm a little lost and he looked at it and he goes oh sure I know right what this is so he started walking me over there and he goes so what are you here for I said well I'm hoping to audition for uh being Michelle Pfeiffer's fight double and, and work with her. And he goes, oh, fantastic. Okay. So we're walking and uh, he goes, it's that building right there. You take the stairs. It's the first door on your right. I said, wow, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. He goes, okay, good luck. So I walk in, the, I knock on the door. The guy says, yeah, come on in. So I walk in and this is right before my fight on Showtime against a woman named Nora Daigle. So I was at the, I was still in fantastic shape. And I walked in wearing a tank top and shorts and, you know, I'm, I was shredded. I had about a 5% body fat at the time. And I walked in and, and Max Clevens looked at me and he goes, oh my God, not another fat chick. Can you just go lift a weight or something and then come back? And I laughed and he laughed and I said, oh, you mean the Oreos I've been eating are finally showing? <laughs> he goes, all right, kid, what do you got? And so I handed him a VHS tape of one of my fights. Well, that's all I had. And, you know, I, I had never done an audition before. I never knew what was entailed. I had no clue what was going on. 
way over my head, <laughs> way over my head. So I hand him this VHS tape and he goes, oh, okay. So he puts it in the player that he had and he's watching my fight and the phone rings. He picks up the phone. He goes, yeah. And he goes, oh, yes, sir. Yes, of course. Yeah, I can do that. No problem. And he hangs up the phone. Now, this isn't word for word, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's, he goes, all right, kid, I need you to go downstairs to that grassy area and you know, do your thing. Let me see what you can do in the air. And I said, sure. So I ran downstairs and I'm shadow boxing and I'm throwing punches and kicks and knees and elbows and I'm moving around. And and um, I see the young man who had showed me where the building was. So I thought to myself, all right, well, if I'm being filmed, let's just say I'm being filmed in my mind. I can't look at the camera, so I just got to do my thing. And I just kept moving, kept shadow boxing. And I saw the guy out of the out of my peripheral, but I didn't want to focus on him. And then the guy, Max Clevens, he goes, hey, all right, come on upstairs. So I run upstairs and I walk in the door. And he goes, okay, so Wednesday, I want you to come back. We're going to do a wardrobe fitting and you're going to meet Michelle. We're going to make sure we measure everything. we got to get these costumes. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, what? He goes, you got the job, kid. Nice. Just like that. That's cool. Yeah, it was very cool. And I I was stunned. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to do. And I just thought, okay, now what? What do I do? <laughs> right? <laughs> she goes, come back on this day. And then I realized, okay, this is, this is about a week or so, or not quite a week. It, this was about two weeks, literally, before I was supposed to fight on Showtime. And I thought, crap. Okay, so I... I went to the production company and I, I said to them, hey, I've got a fight on Showtime uh, up in Lake Tahoe and I need some time to acclimate and I, I, I can't work with Michelle right away. Is it okay if I, I, if I have this fight and then I promise I won't have any more fights during the, the filming and, or anything else? I'll just make sure that you know, after this fight, I'll, I'll wait and I'll I'll postpone everything else. Or, you know, I'll just cancel every any other fight that comes up. I won't I won't take it. And they're like, okay, we can do that, no problem. So go have your fight, and then when you come back, we'll get started on everything. But I still had a, a little bit of time to go and meet Michelle and and get get fitted for the cat costume because they had to measure. I mean, they, they measured the circumference of your wrist from your wrist to your elbow, from your elbow to your shoulder, how big your biceps were, wow. how broad your shoulders were, everything. They measured everything to make sure that that costume fit perfectly. And I remember here I am in Lake Tahoe, and uh, it's a couple of days before the fight. I get a phone call from Warner Brothers saying that Michelle wants me to come over there and do a training session with her. And I said, uh, when? Tomorrow? tomorrow uh what time i can't remember it was like one o'clock in the afternoon or something like that one or two and i said um yeah i'll, I'll be there no problem i i didn't go into well i talked to the to producers and they said i didn't have to come until afterwards and i didn't say any of that i just thought mm -hmm. crap michelle pfeiffer wants me there crap i gotta go <laughs> Okay. I gotta go. So I, I I hang up the phone and I go to my I go to my trainer and I between my trainer and several other people of who who came with us, we all scraped together whatever money we could to get me a flight from Lake Tahoe to Burbank. And uh I called a couple friends of mine and 
they were they loaned me a car so that I could drive into Warner Brothers to go train with Michelle. But while I was in the, I remember while I was in the uh, airport, I see this mug, and on the mug, it's a white mug with a black cat all hunched up and looking really fierce and angry. And the caption beneath the cat read, "Piss me off, suffer the consequences." <laughs> And I saw the mug and I went, oh, my God, this is perfect. I'm going to give this to Michelle. And I grabbed the mug and it's still in its box and packaging. And I put it in a bag and I drive into Warner Brothers. And this time I wanted to make damn sure that they literally guided me to wherever the training session was going to be held because I did not want to get lost. So they literally with a Sharpie and and a highlighter (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> marked out the whole route. <laughs> so I trot up to the door and I'm about to knock on the door and the door is ajar. And inside I hear Michelle Pfeiffer, who I think is Michelle Pfeiffer, but she's really, really angry and upset over somebody who had done something to really mess up. I can't remember what it was, but it was, just, she was so angry. She was yelling on the phone and I'm about to knock on the door and I think to myself, oh, crap, I'm showing up when she's really angry and this is not going to bode well. <laughs> so I, I kept waiting for a natural break in the conversation or her yelling and there came one and I knocked on the door really quickly and she goes, hold on. Oh, this is probably my trainer. So I got to go. We'll, we'll get back to this afterwards. So she hangs up the phone. She walks up, she opens the door, she looks at me, and the first words out of her mouth were, oh my God, how much did you hear? <laughs> it, must, it must have been the look on my face. Because <laughs> in my mind, I'm going, wait a minute, I, I just knocked on the door. <laughs> so it must have been the look on my face. And she's looking at me like, oh crap. And I said, I heard just enough to know that somebody really messed up really bad and I'm sorry that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I kind of uh, tilted my head down and held up the mug and I said, but I got you a gift. (laughs) (laughs) And she grabbed the mug and she's looking at it and she tears open the box and looks at the cat. She goes, oh oh my God, this is perfect. (laughs) Absolutely perfect. She goes, this is amazing. Where did you find this? I said, I found it in the airport (laughs) in Burbank. She goes, oh, my God, thank you so much. And that immediately broke the ice, and it went really smoothly from there, really smoothly. It was just a, a, a nice way of, <laughs> I guess, getting her out of her, her angry moment. That's cool. I actually still remember, I probably still have the issue, the Black Belt uh, article about you getting the, the, the stunt role in that movie. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. We were really excited about that when that, that came out, and I remember going to the movie trying to – Pick out. All right, I think that's Kathy. I think that's Kathy. <laughs> so, any any time you saw me from behind, yep, it was definitely me. Cool. But there were a few times where you saw, you know, a quarter angle of me or a front front of me because I had to wear her nose every time we did shooting. Ah, okay. Because her nose was a bit larger than mine, and I have a I have a very tiny nose, so I had to wear a prosthetic. And okay. one of the most wonderful experiences was. While I was getting my prosthetic nose put on, at the same time, 
Danny DeVito was getting his penguin outfit and his nose and everything else put on. Okay. So we would sit and talk and he was just a sweetheart, an absolute sweetheart of a guy. That's awesome. And that's just, that's what an experience. <laughs> I mean, I, It really was. I mean, the first time ever working on a film and first time trying to figure out how to choreograph fight scenes in a film, especially of, of that caliber. And, you know, Tim Burton was just such a delight to work with. I mean, I, 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 he was so creative and so fun to be around. He was like a little kid, just, you know, bouncing around everywhere, having a blast doing this and that. And I, I think one of my favorite experiences was walking into Warner Brothers soundstage that was completely empty. And then within a, a few months, you had a full working city wow. with traffic lights, streets, you know, sewer, sewer pipes, I mean, buildings, some were just a facade and some were, you know, actually functioning buildings with plumbing and electricity and everything else. Crazy, crazy cool. It was amazing. So question now, this is kind of shifting gears a little bit. And you, you kind of touched on this a little bit in the beginning when you talked about your first instructor. But let's say a, a friend approaches you or someone asks you, they've never done martial arts in their life and they're thinking of getting involved in martial arts. What are some tips you'd give them on what to look for in an instructor and in a school and maybe some things to avoid? Okay. One of the first things I would ask them is, what is your interest in martial arts? What do you want to accomplish with it? What do you want to learn from it? Because, you know, when you become a martial artist, it becomes a lifestyle and it does have an effect in everything else that you do in your life. For example, you know, when I tell people to, you know, my students, I say, apply your Kung Fu. They go, what do you mean, Sifu? Well, okay. So you work, you work in a store and in that store, do you do the absolute best you possibly can in whatever your job position is? Or do you just slough it off and, and do half-ass it? It's the sort of thing that, it, you know, the standards that I hold you by when you come to my class are the standards you need to take with you when you go to everything else that you do. Every task that you do, you do it the absolute best way you possibly can because you wouldn't slough it off in class here. I digress. So anyway, mm -hmm. I would ask them what they're interested in learning, how to defend yourself. Do you want to get into tournaments? Do you want to, you know, do forms? If somebody doesn't know absolutely anything about martial arts, that would be one of the first questions I'd ask them. What do you, what do you really want to learn from martial arts? Depending on their answer, I would suggest that they find an instructor that is one, open-minded, two, really cares about the people that come into the school. I mean, if they just want to get into martial arts because they're, they don't feel they're really good at sports or anything else, you know, they would find an instructor where the, the group of people, like what I experienced when I was 14 was, you know, everybody took an interest in what you did and how you did it and how well you learned and, and they helped you in every aspect. And you, if you can find a place where you feel at home, quote unquote, and you're comfortable and you feel like you're part of a family, then stick with that. That's a great answer. So if you had to pick one martial artist that you truly admire, whether it's someone you've actually met and trained with or just someone you've looked up to your whole life, is there, can you, can you pick one? I don't think so because there are too many. Not that I would name a name, but it's just that there are martial artists who, um, you know, embody uh, the spiritual aspect of it, the medicinal aspect of it, holistic aspect of it not just the martial aspect of it 
And, you know, in order to be a well-rounded martial artist, you can't just focus on, on destroying your opponent without knowing how to help them and how to fix, how to repair. Okay. Because there, there has to be both. You can't just learn how to destroy people without knowing how to help them as well. Because it's not about fighting, even though you break down the word martial, it's the god of war, which is Mars. But it's also about learning how to elevate people. I mean, Lao Tzu said, if you want to learn how to lead people, follow behind them. Good answer. Is there a philosophy you learned in all your years of martial arts that is really important to you that you still teach to your students today? I encourage my students to become as well-rounded as they possibly can. So not just in martial arts, but in life in general. And I'm not saying, well, I don't know. It's it's multifaceted because mm-hmm. when I was teaching, when I was working with fighters, starting from the very beginning to, you know, I, I had one fighter that started with me and he's now fighting at the UFC. It's, it's one of those situations where I say, you know, don't settle because comfort, being comfortable can, can become a drug. You know, once you get used to it, it's very addicting, highly addicting. And if you settle for just enough, then you'll never understand. I mean, being pushed beyond your comfort zone is one of the best things you can possibly do as a individual and as a martial artist. Right. And I, I think the comfort zone is where dreams go to die. Okay. Now, you know, the whole time I was training in martial arts, kickboxing, when I when I met my this this guy, Eric, you know, he became horribly abusive, horribly. And he was very insecure and learning from him, learning about life just by the experiences that I had. It was one of the roughest experiences I've ever gone through. I mean, I when I tell people I, I've been through hell, I have. I've been. And coming out the other side, I understand now. I understand how people can, you know, be crushed. I understand that it's really important to support people in, in what they want to do. Uh, you know, may, they may not be world-class status, but they're, you know, trying to achieve something to the best of their ability. And my job is to support that and encourage that and help it, help them in any way I possibly can. Nice. All right. I have uh, three more quick ones and these ones, they're kind of fun questions and you, you can't, your answer can't be one of the ones you were involved with if you were. So do you have a favorite martial arts book? Hmm. I have to say the art of war is a very good book, but yep. it's not my favorite. I, I, it's very difficult for me to say I have a favorite of anything because there's there's lots of good books out there and it just depends on the individual who's reading it because you know the art of war may not may not make much sense to one person but mm-hmm. makes perfect sense to another that's a hard one because i don't have a favorite and there's many things i don't have favorites in okay which can be can be frustrating as an answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Well, the, these last two might be tough too. Then, because uh, uh, okay. the, the next one is a favorite martial arts TV show. And if you can't think of a favorite, maybe like a guilty pleasure. Like if you're watching TV and a rerun of the show comes on, you're gonna watch it. Yes. If you can't pick one, if you can, you know, two or three of your top ones, maybe. Did you ever see the series The Green Arrow? I loved it. Yes. Yeah, me too. Yep. You know, something I appreciated about the actor was that, you know, he had the physicality and he moved well. And I, you can tell that in that series, he took what he did very seriously. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that. I appreciated the fact that, you know, when he was in that job, he was absolutely 1,000% in that job. 
Oh, I agree. And did absolutely everything he could to be that character. And I thought that he did a fantastic job, both yes. with the physical aspect of it and the acting aspect of it. And I just thought, okay, you know, I mean, the story is what, what, what it was. And some of it, you know, sometimes it took kind of a left turn. But overall, him as a character, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I know. Stephen Amell did great in that show. It's one of my favorite series. So I agree completely. Yeah, there you go. Me okay. too. It is one of my favorite series. If I'm if I'm going to have a favorite, we'll just stick with that one. Okay. How about that? Perfect. Perfect. And then uh, final one, how about a favorite martial arts movie? Hmm. If you're like me, my literally my favorite changes every few weeks probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what would the, I mean, my go-to is always the Karate Kid for me because that's the movie that got me started in martial arts. So that really? one, that one always cool. has, yeah. Because I literally, and I've I've told the story before, but I literally went to the opening weekend with my friends, and there was a local martial arts instructor handing out free passes outside of the movie theater after the movie wow. ended, which is great marketing in 1984. So that one that's always has a special, yeah, always has a special <laughs> place in my heart. <laughs> so I have met many other that I love, and I'll watch whenever they're on. But that's always goes to the top of my list because of that reason. You know, there's so many wonderful messages in that in that book, movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely a good one, but I, I can't say I have a favorite. But on the top of the list, you know, on one of the top one of the top ones on that list is definitely that one. Nice, um, because of the message, because of you know the the creativity and how they g- got this kid to become more than what he what he thought he could be. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. So I have to ask: Have you watched the new Cobra Kai at all? No. Okay. <laughs> that's one of that's one of the guilty pleasures one. That's that's probably one of my favorite shows right now. <laughs> I watch it. Is it? I, yeah, when the new season came out, I watched it in a day. So. <laughs> so how how was it? I mean, oh, is it? Any I love good? it. It's yeah. It's four seasons in. I mean, it's I, I I love the nostalgia. One thing I did was when I knew it was coming out, I went and rewatched the original three movies first right away, just Got so it. I'd be they'd be fresh. I mean, I watch them any time. You know, once a year anyway, but I wanted them fresh in my head. So I catch all the little things. And I've talked to people who watch the series and haven't rewatched or have never seen the originals. And I'm like, you're missing so much little tiny, like inside jokes that you're not catching and stuff. And it's great anyway, but if you're going to watch it, watch the original first and you'll pick up so much more, but it's, it's fun. It's just fun seeing those characters and they keep bringing back more characters from the movies in each season and stuff. And, you know, they brought back Allie, you know, they brought back Terry Silver. So, I mean, it's, (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. been, it's been fun. I, I I enjoy it, and I watch it with my daughters. You know, me and my you know, my um fifteen year old daughter. It's kind of our favorite show to watch together, and we're already waiting for season five. So, do any of your kids do martial arts? They have actually. They, uh, right now, not currently. All three of them did. They all started uh, traditional taekwondo when they were five. Oldest son got to his third degree junior black belt. My middle son got to his second degree junior black belt. My daughter got to her first degree junior black belt. They're involved in so much other things that they, at some point, right around the age of like 14, 15, they all quit. My daughter quit when she was about 12 and actually came back to it early this year and then got busy with theater. But I'm hoping she'll come back to it again because she, she really wants to get her adult black belt. So I'm hoping, you know, hoping she'll come back and, and do it. And I'd love all of them to come back to it at some point. I know they, my, my middle son said he really missed it, but he's, he does three sports. He does theater. He does speech. He does choir. So he's a, he's a busy kid. <laughs> but, yeah. It sounds like it, but you know, in, in that respect, it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a good thing, but they all loved uh-huh. it when they did it. They all, you know, love our instructor and stuff and even got my mom involved. My mom joined in her forties and got her black belt. 
So yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I tried to talk her into it for a year and she always said she was too old and we, she came to a demonstration we did at a fair and there was a, one of our students, uh, Miss Edith was her name. She was 73 going for her black belt and my mom joined. She's like, if she can do it. I can do it. <laughs> so she, she, she joined the next day. It was kind of cool. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and, and my wife did it, you know, when she was younger too, and I'd love for her to get back into it, but I don't think that's in the cards. So yeah. Do you no. still currently train? Uh, when I can, um, it's right in the last few years, it's just been busy with kids running around to their events. Luckily yeah. the school I train at is right near my full-time job. So I'll go there on a lot of my lunch breaks and just kick the bag and stretch and jump rope and and nice. when my when my daughter came back, it was great because then I could jump back in and start help teaching class again. And so, so yeah, when she yeah. when she can go back, I can go back because I don't have to run her around every place. So, but yeah, no, it's 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 always been a part of my life. I'm a, you know I, I've been with that instructor since '94. I've been in martial arts since '84. So nice. yeah, yeah, I, I will. I'll always come back to it at some point. You know, injuries or not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I started martial arts, what, 1970-something. Okay, okay. <laughs> when, when did I start high school? I'm trying to remember. I think I started high school 79. Okay. Yeah, there you go. You know, not, not, to, not to make you feel bad, but I was born in 74, so... <laughs> Uh, I'm just ten years older. That's all. Yeah, that's not that's not bad. No, not no. too bad. Yeah. No. And I started started martial arts in '84, and I started radio in '89, and finally was able to com cool. combine the two together after many years of trying. I actually tried to to get this as a radio show back in the '90s, and the station I worked at did not think people would listen to a martial arts radio show, so kept it in my, kept it in my back pocket. And when COVID hit, I'm like, I'm just going to do it as a podcast. So, and it See? was born <laughs> and yeah, now yeah. it's coming in almost a year. Cause it's uh, let's see, you're going to be episode number. I want to say, I think you're going to be episode number, I think 48 or 49. So I got to look at my list, but so yeah, it's been, I've been, I've been lucky, lucky enough to have people say yes and, and willing to tell their stories. And it's been a nice mixture of known martial artists and unknown martial artists. I've interviewed most of my previous instructors, you know, interviewed nice. some authors, some motivational speakers, and it's just an, a nice mixture and it's been fun letting people tell their stories. So, Yay. Well, there's cool. so much more to the story, but you know, you only have so much time, right? Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, people, that's, you know, encourage people to follow you on social media if they want to and stuff. And any, any of those links, I'll put them in the show notes for anything and uh, that you want me to promote and maybe put some links to some of your, your fights on there. If I can find some of those on YouTube and stuff. Uh, and, they're all over YouTube. Oh, you, you'll perfect. have no problem finding them. I, I don't know who put them on there, but <laughs> there's so much of my stuff on there. I have no clue That's awesome. <laughs> who though. did that or what, but I'm grateful. I'm super grateful because, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, after they hear about me or they meet me, they'll look me up on YouTube or Google, especially mm -hmm. YouTube, but, and they'll go, Oh my God, I had no idea. Yep. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. It's in the internet can be a wonderful thing sometimes. So Sometimes it can. Yeah. But you know, if anybody wants to book me for seminars or anything like that, just um, uh, they can reach me through um, the school I'm teaching in now is the Seattle Wushu center. So it could be, I think the website is seattlewushu.org or, okay. or my email, if you're willing to give that out. It's oh, yeah. uh, my name, Kathy Long. And then the initials E-M-A, as in Ed, uh, Evolving Martial Arts, ah, okay. at gmail.com. Yeah, no, I will post anything you want me to post. I will put it on there when the show comes out in a few weeks. And, 
and send people. I'd love to talk to some local instructors about bringing you in for a seminar. I think that'd be fun to try to do. So be I cool. would love that too. Cool. Thank you. But, I appreciate it. But once again, I just, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been, I know we, we kind of went back and forth for a while. We were both kind of busy and finally, finally we're able to pick a day that made it work. So I'm glad we were able to do this. And I've, I've loved hearing your story and, and been, a, been a fan for a long time and we'll continue to, to follow you and, and promote your stuff. So you're very kind. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.